Broadcasting live from Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Women's Telehealth, whose mission is to bring scarce, high-risk maternal fetal medicine services to patients and referring obstetricians in their own community, urban or rural. Visit womenstelehealth.com for more information. Now, here are your hosts, Tanya Mack and C.W. Hall. What is up, everyone? It is CW, your host here on the Top Docs Radio Show. Tanya is out and about traveling uh, right now today, so it's just me. But we're going to be getting into autism. I've got Dr. Caitlin Delfs, PhD and licensed psychologist with the Marcus Autism Center with me here in the studio today. Thanks for taking some time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. No problem. So let's let's talk a little bit about your your work because from what I understand in in your daily work you're focused on young people dealing with autism. What you're you're going through through school and you decided I want to go into psychology and, and then from there I want to work with these folks. Talk about the evolution that you went through that uh, brought you to where you are. Sure. So um, like many people who graduate with a bachelor's degree in psychology, when I finished, I wanted to know what in the world I was going to do with that degree. Um, I moved to Atlanta and I started working at what was at the time the Marcus Institute. And I worked as a direct line therapist with young children with autism and other developmental disabilities. Um, I got my start there sort of understanding um, behavior analysis and that approach to treating young children with autism. And so I went on to graduate school, I studied school psychology, um, where I worked with many wonderful mentors in the field of autism, and my interest um, kind of grew from there. Did you have any kind of personal experiences along the way that made you want to go down that path academically? Uh, Not specifically, although um, I did work, have the opportunity to work with some young children in a special education classroom in Clark County in Athens, Georgia, uh, many of whom had a diagnosis of autism. And so that was my first start um, interacting with young children and their families who were affected by autism. Looking at autism, talking about some statistics around it, CDC estimating the prevalence of autism spectrum disorders in the U.S., approximately one in 68 children. That's a lot. Surprising, I, I wasn't aware of just how many that uh, children around the country were dealing with this issue, uh, affecting males more than females by a pretty significant margin, looks like. Mm-hmm. And it's a class of neurodevelopmental conditions, including interaction difficulties, communication and language impairments, repetitive behaviors. It can be very disruptive for, for obviously, the, the individual's life, but it's also very challenging from the perspective of the home. Um, their experiences in the the, the learning environment and, and work. Uh, so it's it's certainly one that is warranting a lot of attention in terms of what's causing this issue um, and you know how to how to go about it. So when when we talk about autism spectrum disorder, how do we how do we come to the realization this is what we're dealing with? That's a great question. I think there are some um, pretty well-defined red flags for parents or care providers who are experiencing some of these symptoms with their children. So some of the first things that you might notice are things like um, no babbling or cooing by one year, no pointing or waving by one year, no spontaneous two-word phrases by two years, um, different things like that that are red flags for parents as well as pediatricians. And when we talk about just the the prevalence and the the high rate of occurrence of autism spectrum disorder, 
Is it because we're more aware and therefore we are diagnosing it more, or is it truly happening more frequently than it used to? Right. So as you mentioned, the the new prevalence rates put out by the CDC are one in 68 children in the United States have a diagnosis of autism. Um, and that is an increase from one in 110 um, about 10 years ago in 2006. Those were the prevalence rates. So it's increasing. The numbers are increasing pretty dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, we don't have a perfect scientific answer for why that's happening. But you mentioned a couple of um, options or possibilities. So one is that there is just more awareness of um, parents and caregivers, teachers, pediatricians, et cetera, who are just sort of more aware of this constellation of symptoms and are making diagnoses earlier. Um, There's also um, the idea that there may just be um, a a different way that we're gathering information about prevalence now. So the the CDC has gathered information in different ways across time. And so some of those um, differences in the way they gather information may have an effect on prevalence rates. It could be that there is a higher increase in the prevalence of autism, um, but more likely is probably that the diagnostic criteria for autism has actually changed significantly over time. And um, many think that the more recent uh, diagnostic criteria are a little bit more um, encompassing and include more individuals with autism that previously may have had a different diagnosis. Well, you talked about some things that you would expect to see in or very young child, even, you know, infant age Mm -hmm. uh, and into the toddler years, are we able to make diagnosis at that point or, or is it more a matter of we're not seeing certain milestones that you talked about, the, the babbling, the pointing, different things like that, that you would normally see with these young folks. I mean, when can I be diagnosed such that we can actually begin to do some things that hopefully will help with it? Right. The average age of diagnosis for autism in the United States is four and a half years old. Wow. And it's even later for some underserved population. Um, <clears throat> however, um, many um, experienced clinicians can diagnose as young as 18 to 24 months. And in fact, the Academy of Pediatrics has um, suggested that uh, doctors, pediatricians use autism-specific screening checklists at both 18-month and 24-month well-child visits in order to make this happen. Many parents who are concerned about their child's development um, and they bring these concerns to their pediatricians, oftentimes they're told it's a phase, every child is different, this is going to happen, or he's just a boy, boys develop slower. Things like that. And so oftentimes, unfortunately, parents who have significant concerns at really young ages um, are not provided with access to more specific screening and diagnosis. With regards to the behaviors that you see, the signs that you see, you mentioned a couple, but I mean, are are those the big ones or are there more things that you see when, when a child is truly autistic? Uh, The core characteristics of any individual with autism is a deficit in social communication skills. And then the second characteristic is either repetitive behavior. Um, Many people refer to that as stimming or self-stimulation. That might include things like hand flapping or twirling around or just engaging in non-purposeful or non-functional motor behaviors. Um, And if individuals are higher functioning and have vocal or verbal skills, you might see things like repetitive, uh, excuse me, restricted interests where individuals are really focused on very specific things that potentially are not interesting to other people or don't really aid in social interaction with peers. Now, is that the sort of thing that would ultimately cause a 
a mom and or dad to start really taking a look at it. You talked about mentioning it to my pediatrician when we go in for our well baby checkups and things like that. Uh, and I can see as you, you're, you're describing, especially if the things are not too intense, not too severe or disruptive where they might put it off. But it sounds like some of those types of behaviors are, if, if happening frequently enough, would, would cause them to maybe seek out help with organizations such as yours or maybe a psychologist or who, where do they typically go if they're not going to the pediatrician or they're not getting traction with the pediatrician? Well, Georgia participates in Child Find, which is um, our the state's responsibility to identify individuals who have developmental disabilities. Um, for individuals um, zero to three, birth to three, um, our organization is Babies Can't Wait in the state of Georgia. And Babies Can't Wait can provide intervention services to children in that age group. After the age of three, if parents have concerns, they can reach out to their local um, public school system and access a um, diagnostic evaluation, excuse me, not a diagnostic evaluation, but an evaluation to determine whether or not the child would meet criteria for special education services. Um, Pediatricians can also diagnose autism. It's usually a provisional diagnosis as the family waits for a more um, thorough um, diagnostic evaluation from an experienced clinician. When my daughter is one that that experienced some sensory processing um, as as part of her situation, and it affected you know her in the learning environment. She was one that would would end up going to. She had some dyslexia, for example, dyscalculia. Didn't have any kind of autism or anything like that, but um, was one that benefited from. I guess a different learning environment than what you would see in a traditional sense. When you're when you're talking about Autism, you know, speaking with the teachers, for example, of, of the school where she was going, they talk about brain types. Is that what we're talking about here with, with regards to autism? I mean, are there some actual physical changes in the brain that we have identified that affect these, these individuals that, that cause this sort of spectrum of behaviors and, and things to occur? Unfortunately, with autism, we don't know the cause Mm. of autism. So we do know that it's a neurodevelopmental disorder, and the way that it expresses is in deficits in social interaction and language and communication. Often, it's accompanied by a significant language delay. So many children who are not developing language by one year, by two years, by three years, kids who are not speaking. Um, And um, because of this lack of communication, or at least related to it are deficits in social interaction. So it's very difficult to say if there's a specific part of the brain um, that is affected by autism. And the thing that the one thing that we know for certain about individuals with autism is that they're all individuals and they all present um, their uh, weaknesses in social interaction and communication very differently. Some individuals on the spectrum don't have any vocal language or verbal language. They cannot communicate in a really functional way with other people. Other individuals are extremely talkative and verbose and, um, you know, have uh, higher education degrees and have very um, prominent professional lives um, in the world of science and art and a variety of other areas. So there's really just a huge spectrum when it comes to autism. And I guess that's why they call it a spectrum because it has to do with just how extensively the the condition is being expressed as to how how it makes you behave and how disruptive it is for your life. Now, when it comes to 
we've gone through the process of identifying my child is one that that is dealing with autism spectrum disorder. Now what? What happens in terms of if you want to call it treatment, what are we what are we doing for the child once we realize that yes, they're dealing with autism? Sure. So um, many people talk about early detection and how important that is. And the reason it's really important is that it leads to early intervention. And we know that that is key for successful outcomes in many individuals with autism. Once a parent or a caregiver um, has a diagnosis of autism, the next step, like you mentioned, is sort of overcoming the hurdle of now what do I do? Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you Google autism interventions right now, there are thousands of different treatments and therapies and approaches to addressing autism. And that can be really overwhelming for parents as well as for care providers who are not experts in the field of autism. Um, And even for some who are, I think it's confusing. Um, But the real focus or the real um, priority, I think, should be finding an intervention that is um, individualized for your family and, um, you know, any, any approach or any intervention that presents itself as being um, effective for every single child with a diagnosis of autism, parents should be wary of that because there is no intervention that is going to work for every single person who has a diagnosis of autism because, as we've talked about already, every individual is different. So the treatments need to be individualized as well. The other things to look for in terms of interventions are involvement of family and caregivers. Um, So the way that families are involved in intervention can look very different um, across different therapies, but it's really important that parents and even siblings are included in intervention. And this could be through sharing of data or information that's collected during sessions actually involving siblings into treatment sessions as great peer models for the child with autism, um, training parents and other caregivers to work with their children outside of treatment sessions. Um, Parent involvement is really, really important. And then I think one of the most important things is empirical support. So making sure that any intervention that you're seeking out has research to back it up. And when I was talking about my daughter, I mentioned the fact that she had sensory processing. One of the people that she ended up spending some time with when she was young. She's no longer uh, going through those types of treatments or therapies, I guess, if you will, or interventions, I guess, is a good way to talk about it. She would go once or twice a week to an occupational therapist and was doing a number of of exercises that almost looked like play, but they were actually training some body movements and strengthening certain body you know, parts, for example, core strength and different things like that. What does it look like? You know, you talked about an intervention with regards to autism spectrum disorder and and you're a psychologist. Is that where I'm going to do the work on trying to, you know, I guess learn other, you know, different ways of behaving or learning how to interact in certain situations? Is that my my milieu, if you will, for where I'm going to work on dealing with autism and how it's affecting my life? Is it going to be in an office with you? It can look really different for different kids, and usually it's a constellation of care providers. So oftentimes, individuals with autism have access to occupational therapists or OTs. They oftentimes work with physical therapists. Speech-language pathology is another huge area um, of focus um, in terms of intervention for individuals with autism, psychologists, and then also um, behavior analysts. So those who have training and experience and are credentialed um, board-certified behavior analysts have a lot of experience working with behavior in general. 
And so that approach, Applied Behavior Analysis or ABA, is one approach that has been shown to have a lot of empirical support for working with individuals and with autism to um, increase really specific um, behaviors that we want to see more of, as well as decrease some of those problematic behaviors that we'd like to see less of. Now, when it comes to the treatment and intervention for autism spectrum disorder, I mean, what's my life like? Am I seeing you a couple of times a week? How, 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 does, the, how does that process flow? Every approach has a different sort of ratio of intervention um, and you know, number of hours per week. And the type of therapy that we provide at the Marcus Autism Center through the Language and Learning Clinic, which is the department that I work in, we see kids um, in our clinic every single day, Monday through Friday, for a couple hours or three hours each day. And then in our home-based program where we are actually providing therapy in the home of our families, we see kids anywhere from two to five days a week. Dr. Caitlin Delfs with the Marcus Autism Center is with us here in the studio today, and we're looking at autism spectrum disorder, how it's diagnosed, the fact that it is quite prevalent out there among the children in the United States, uh, more so among males than females, uh, learning a little bit about some of the signs and symptoms of autism and what to be thinking about when it might make sense to go and and get your child evaluated for treatment when it comes to the treatment side of things, intervention, um, Caitlin, I mean, are we pretty good about getting kids into uh, engagement with folks like yourself or are there some children that are being left out? Unfortunately, the answer is yes. There are a lot of children who are left out. Um, There's some research that suggests about 80% of individuals who would benefit from early intervention are not getting access to that intervention. Um, There are a lot of different reasons for that. Some of them include sort of barriers to accessing the diagnostic evaluation that we talked about before. Um, The others are things like um, location. So, Um, Specialty services are not readily available in a lot of rural areas and can be difficult to access. For other families, it's knowing or um, education or information about what intervention services are available to them. Many families just do not know what they can access, um, or once they do know about it, they don't know how to go about it. They don't Mm -hmm. know the next steps. And then I think um, one of the other more significant barriers is cost. Treatment for a child with autism receiving 6 to 15 hours of intervention a week is extremely expensive, and most families cannot pay for that service out of pocket. And unfortunately, insurance, many families don't have access to insurance that will cover the cost of that type of intervention. I was going to ask about insurance and third-party payers. So what you're saying is in some instances, some of them will cover some measure of it, but much of the cost of of those office visits is going to fall to the parent. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. Very That's difficult. And and before we went on the air today, you mentioned the fact that there's a, a telemedicine component to your practice. Is that something that you fold into some of those parents that are maybe remote and they have a child um, not handy to the autism center here in town? Absolutely. So um, we utilize telehealth in a variety of different ways through the Language and Learning Clinic, but also through other departments at the Marcus Autism Center. Um, In the Language and Learning Clinic specifically, we actually have a a parent training program where we reach out to families and work with the family and child every week for 12 weeks um, to address the specific needs and goals of that family. Um, We used to... um, 
through the community autism program, drive out to the families' homes and work with them in their home, which we still do. And it's a great way to get some hands-on observation and really see what life is like for that family and help parents come up with strategies that are going to work in that situation. But for many families, they live too far away and our therapists cannot drive all over the state of Georgia. Sure. Um, So many families were given the opportunity to come into the building and have services in our clinic. So they would meet once a week in our clinic space with their child, with um, a trained clinician. But that is still, there are still many families who can't access intervention that way either due to things like transportation, you know, they don't have reliable transportation or they can't make it into the building. And so we've been able to use telehealth that way to connect with families while they sit in their living room or in their kitchen with their child. um, And they can communicate through this web-based platform um, called WebEx um, with a clinician, a very specialized trained clinician who's in the building. Well, you know, I, I, I think that in healthcare, obviously, technology is is really kind of changing the way that healthcare is delivered. It's telemedicine being one of those that is uh, finding its way into a number of different specialties. And I know that much of the work, based on what you're saying here, when it comes to intervening for an individual with autism spectrum disorder, is going to be through therapy and through talking with a psychologist. But are there other ways that technology is finding a way into helping these individuals here outside of telemedicine? Are there other things that you're doing from a technology perspective that are working with these folks? Sure, absolutely. Um, The first thing would be that I can think of is um, uh, there are a lot of new apps out there that parents and um, care professionals are using with young children with autism to help with functional communication. So in the past, um, we've often trained children who do not have access to, that that are not speaking, um, to use pictures to communicate because we want to give them a way to express themselves and their wants and needs. Um, And so they um, were given pictures that would be of the particular items that they wanted. And they would exchange those saying, you know, for example, handing over a picture of bubbles to say, I want to play with some bubbles right now. But now there are some really great apps that you can use that allow um, kids to use an iPad or some other tablet um, to um, not only select the picture, but then it is voice activated, so then it or voice generating, so then um, it generates the actual statement that the child is making. So that's one pretty significant way. Um, and another is some of the other groundbreaking work that's happening at the Marcus Autism Center right now. Um, Dr. Ami Klin and Dr. Warren Jones um, have developed some eye tracking technology, and they are um, currently adapting that to be used in pediatricians' offices all across the state of Georgia to help with early detection, screening, and diagnosis of children younger than 18 months. Now, I was going to say that uh, I remember hearing something about that one of the early signs, I guess, is this the eye movements of the, of the infant and young toddler. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yes. I think um, Dr. Clinton and Dr. Jones could probably speak more on that particular subject, but I think that the general gist of their findings is that they have found that individuals with um, autism have different eye patterns, the places that they're looking when they're watching a video that has that includes like a social interaction. Um, they're looking in different places than typically developing individuals. Mm-hmm. And um, they've also been able to determine a particular um, time in, in development when that change happens. And so using some of that information, they're working towards developing this really amazing eye tracking tool. Would you say that the research that is being done today, is it, is it really more aimed at how we can better diagnose and intervene in terms of helping those uh, individuals be able to 
make greater progress with regards to their communication and language type skills and other behaviors? Uh, Or are we also researching causes, you know, trying to find and and how how are we progressing around the research front? Well, I think you're right. I think research in the field of autism is sort of coming at it from both ends. So trying to understand more about the causes of autism, um, but also trying to detect early and then develop more research around the interventions that are available to families. I mean, I, I suppose it's something don't want to wade into too heavily, but I mean, the, the whole conversation around vaccinations, I mean, how does that play into your your experience with the work that you're doing? I mean, does it at all? It doesn't really. I mean, there's no evidence to suggest that vaccines cause autism. Okay. Um, and I think that the um, the most contact that I have with a conversation about vaccines and autism comes from my initial meetings with families. Did the vaccination do this? Right. Okay. Right. And I think that that's a really common question. And I think it makes sense that parents are asking that question because unfortunately, there's so much misinformation out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for many parents, it's... Um, in some ways, an easier solution. It's really easy to understand if someone just says, this is the cause. Unfortunately, though, that's not the case with vaccines. Mm-hmm. When it comes to, it'll show that I'm not very familiar with with the autism side of things, but when I've, when I've been di- diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder and I began working with professionals such as yourself at the, uh, the Marcus Autism Center, I mean, what is the, what is the trajectory and the arc for me as a as a patient now that I'm being you know worked with for for autism is is it a lifelong thing is it a months or years long uh, engagement with with professionals like yourself to to get me down the road what is that like my my life in terms of how long am I working on it, if you will. Sure. Well, um, you know, autism is a lifelong condition. And so the interventions that individuals um, get to address their symptoms um, are really going to depend. So some um, families come in and they have a 12-week parent training program and they feel like they have the strategies that they need. They're able to generalize those skills to other settings. And that can be all of the intervention that they need, that they feel is really beneficial. Other families or other children, depending on the way that they present, depending on the level of deficit or the severity of concerns, it may be years um, in intervention. I mean, um, the research right now suggests 20 to 40 hours per week of intervention for several years. Wow. But that really varies. I mean, for families. But that's a, you know, that's definitely a, it's a part-time to full-time work. Absolutely. to, to, To get through it. That's mm-hmm. interesting. And when it comes to getting involved with Marcus Center and, and other programs, I mean, are there questions that you would advise for parents to be thinking about when it comes to where do I take my child? Hmm. I think there are a lot of specialty care providers in the Atlanta area and throughout the state of Georgia that can help answer some of those questions. Um, pediatricians are definitely the first place to start. So if you have concerns about your child's development, you should absolutely be bringing those up to your pediatrician and making sure that your concerns are being heard. Once you've decided that you are ready to sort of pursue intervention, there are some great national websites like Autism Speaks that have tons of information for families and caregivers that sort of allow allow parents to um, experience what other families have experienced um, and sort of learn from them what some of the next steps might be. Now, we talked earlier about the fact that 
in some instances, particularly sounds like if either the symptoms are relatively minor or vague, um, or the, the, the child is particularly young that it, in the pediatrician's office that oftentimes some of those early signs go by the wayside and some time is lost. Um, as we talked about before we went on the air today, the, a lot of the folks that listen to Top Docs Radio around the community end up coming from physician practices. Um, many of them are physicians themselves. Do you have advice or suggestions, recommendations for those primary care and, and pediatrician physicians out there that might be seeing some of these folks that, that might make them act a little more early to recommend getting involved with folks like the, the Marcus Autism Center? Sure. I mean, I think it's understandable that pediatricians cannot be experts in every single thing that might be affecting um, young children. And so I think that if there is a concern specifically with language, communication, or social skills, and some of these red flags are reported or observed, I think helping the family to actively seek out um, an experienced clinician with training and expertise in um, diagnosis would be an important next step. I suppose being able to, you know, I'm sure that many of them don't want to be crying wolf, you know, sure. and don't want to be overly stressing out parents. I mean, because, you know, when you've got a young infant or toddler, you worry about them all the time and, oh my gosh, do you know, so you don't want to alert them and, and, and worry them overly, but it would seem that as you were saying, if you can get intervened upon early, maybe a recommending being evaluated sooner than later is probably a, a, a wise choice when you think eh, maybe a couple of things. I know that a lot of things as you described might be just a phase or might just be some typical young mm-hmm. person behavior, but when how, how much intervention is necessary and, and how long we might need to work with that intervention, it sounds like it may be less if we start sooner. So mm-hmm. yeah, trying to get some of that early diagnosis in. Sure. I mean, I can understand no one wants to be an alarmist and to scare parents of a young child. But I think the reality is that a diagnosis shouldn't be that scary. I mean, there are a lot of opportunities um, for intervention and um, helping parents to access diagnosis and screening measures just to give them more information so that they know what types of interventions might be helpful is a really important step. Now, I know some of your folks do do, do work in the, the research arena. Are there studies going on? Um, within the Marcus Autism Center that folks could participate in um, that that they need to know about, or how does that flow? Absolutely. So we have an entire department at the Marcus Autism Center that's really focused on um, uh, increasing the science of clinical care. Um, and, and through that department, there are tons, tons of different studies that families with a child with autism or families who don't have a child with autism can participate in. And we would love for that to happen. Mm -hmm. I think it's also important to note that our clinical services at the Marcus Autism Center are also doing a lot of work in the field of research. So we're always evaluating our clinical services and trying to um, not only serve the families that we're working with now, but also to better our interventions for future families. Talk about where folks can go to get more information, either to see if maybe one of those um, research programs might be appropriate for their child to participate in, either as a subject or a control. 
or uh, just get involved with your with your clinicians? Sure. So the website to go to would be www.marcus.org. And there is a research page um, at the top. There's a link to that. So you can click there and find out a lot of information about our current research projects and how um, you might be able to participate in those. Um, you can also call the Marcus Autism Center. The main number is 404-785-9400. And they can direct you to someone to answer any questions that you might have. And of course, today's episode is being done in partnership with women's telehealth providers of high risk maternal fetal specialty being delivered through telephony and telemedicine technology around the state uh, and beyond. And if you want more information about their services and how they might make sense for your hospital or physician practice, uh, you can go to womenstelehealth.com and get linked up with them and find out all about what they're doing there to provide those high-risk maternal fetal specialty services to women around uh, the, the various parts of the country. And if you've not done so already and you come back for the podcast in the upper left-hand corner, of the Top Docs Radio Show page. You'll see the Apple logo there. That'll take you to the Top Docs Radio Show podcast on iTunes, and you can subscribe to us. That way, when the new episode comes out, it's downloaded straight to your device, and you can listen to it whenever it's convenient for you. And we hope you turn around and share this information with your social media networks. Clearly, autism is one of those things that uh, can create a measure of anxiety. And Caitlin here has shared, I think, a good bit of information that can help allay some of that from the perspective of uh, there are interventions available for for these folks when they're found to have autism, and um, they can, as Caitlin described, go on to have some uh, successful lives. And uh, getting in the care of folks like at the Marcus Autism Center uh, can certainly help them do that. So we want to say thank you very much if you turn around and share this information with Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever the case may be for you. And Caitlin, I really want to say thanks so much for coming by the studio today and sharing information about autism and the uh, Marcus Autism Center. Thank you. It was a pleasure. For all the folks out there that made us a part of your day today, we want to say thank you very much. We really appreciate you. We look forward to catching up with you next week, same time. 